Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Good afternoon and welcome to this recording from the National Stroke Education Center. I'm Jordan Bonomo, an emergency physician and stroke doctor here at the University of Cincinnati, and it is my distinct pleasure to be here today with Dr. Eleni Ansulatos. Dr. Ansulatos has been with us here in Cincinnati uh, for a few years, and we are privileged to have learned from her and worked with her. And today we're going to talk about disability and the NIH stroke scale, and specifically talk about when the NIH stroke scale fails us. So my question to you as a stroke neurologist with extensive experience now in evaluating all of these patients who come in with acute strokes is that NIH stroke scale, has it ever let you down? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I'll just say thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be doing this, and I'm, I'm thank you. It's an honor to be invited. But yes, it's totally let me down many times. Do you remember one example? Sure. I'll remember an example that happened um, when I was a chief resident and I was with a, another one of my residents who was the same year, and we were evaluating somebody in the emergency room and their stroke scale was zero. And they kept telling us that they were weak and they weren't really describing their weakness very well. And we couldn't get a great story out of them and and we couldn't find anything in the while they were laying down in the bed and we decided that we were going to get them up out of the bed and walk them around to see what they were talking about and if we could better differentiate their weakness and they ended up having horrific truncal ataxia so they weren't weak they just had really bad ataxia and they could not not only could they not sit up in the bed without being supported by the back of the bed but they definitely couldn't stand up without falling over um, ended up having a very large cerebellar stroke um, we did give them we were able to give them tpa and we were able to treat them with alteplase um, still ended up having some deficits afterwards but it was totally a situation where the stroke scale was a zero and if you didn't take a couple of extra steps you could have very easily missed a very disabling deficit for the patient so that's my favorite war story from acute stroke care because I have the exact same story in a 40-year, right? But nowhere in the stroke scale does it say walk your patient. And as an emergency physician, I struggle to get my patients in a gown half the time, let alone walk them. So do you actually include ambulation as part of your stroke evaluation in most patients? So it depends on the patient. So if a patient has a stroke syndrome that is clearly disabling that I can see from the level of the bed, if they're not moving their extremities, their arm or their leg, and they have very clear focal neurologic deficits, and I'm going to be considering acute treatment in that patient regardless as to whether or not they can walk, I usually don't get them up and walk them. The emergency rooms are very busy. The nurses are busy. The patients are hooked up to all kinds of machines that can trip. There's all things that can happen. So if I can make the assessment when they're laying in the bed, I don't feel the need to walk them in the hyperacute setting. But if I don't and I have suspicion, or if I'm doing telemedicine from across a city and I can't lay eyes on a patient and I can't do a more detailed neurologic exam, I will oftentimes ask our providers that I'm working with to walk the patient. Okay. So we've got walking the patient when it's appropriate to do so, when we aren't entirely sure what the deficit is, or maybe when we're more remote with telemedicine. We got these stroke scales of zero, which can be profoundly disabling. What else do you do as a stroke neurologist when you're evaluating your patient beyond the NIH stroke scale to assess disability and make that really tough choice about treatment or no treatment? Sure. I think, you know, one of the other 
examples that crossed my mind when you asked me the first question had to do with um, a dysarthria clumsy hand patient. And so dysarthria clumsy hand is kind of a classic presentation of a lacunar syndrome that happens and it's described in the books. And and they're not weak, really. Their hands and their, their extremity is not weak, but their hand is clumsy. And it can be extremely disabling if it's a dominant hand, if it's a young person, if it's somebody that utilizes their hand for hobbies or for, for their job, it can be incredibly disabling. So I do step away from the stroke scale to have patients kind of manipulate or write with their dominant hand or have them manipulate like a button on their gown or something, um, especially when they're telling me they're weak and I cannot capture the weakness adequately with a stroke scale, which is basically only asking them to raise their arm. And so I'll have them manipulate to see if they're clumsy in their hand and that may be a form of their weakness and it can be very disabling. So it's definitely another thing that I do. So if I'm hearing you right, you don't ascribe a particular stroke score to disability. While elevated stroke scores in the teens and 20s, essentially those patients are ubiquitously disabled simply because their strokes are so severe that they've climbed to that range. But in the lower ranges of the stroke scoring, the zeros to sixes and such, a disability assessment seems critical. And I've had other people come to our podcast and share that information with us as well. How do you truly assess disability in your mind when you're looking at a patient? Are there any questions you ask yourself? Is there a rubric you go through when you're thinking about it? I think, like you said, if the deficits are severe enough, we're not really in the position of of digging deeper because you can see that the stroke is clearly disabling to the person. But when people come in and they have these, quote, mild symptoms or mild strokes or they're rapidly resolving and they're all these buzzwords that that cause us to move away toward acute treatments that we know can help patients with disabling symptoms. Um, there's a big portion of an exam for a mild stroke patient in my mind that involves talking with the patient, like getting an idea of who they are as a patient, which can be very difficult to do quickly in an acute setting. But the, a common example that I give in, in these situations is the idea of hemisensory loss. So hemisensory loss is, is also a classic presentation of stroke. And in, and in general, and in, in the clinical trials that we have that look at non-disabling stroke, we don't look at um, hemisensory loss as being particularly disabling. But, you know, I did my residency training in New Orleans, and there's a lot of musicians in New Orleans, and hemisensory loss, particularly in the hand for a trumpet player, is a real big problem, and it is incredibly disabling. Now, we don't exactly know whether for those quote-unquote mild strokes and mild symptoms, we don't know if TPA or intravenous alteplase is going to make them better. And in fact, the clinical trial that we have, uh, which is the PRISMS trial, was a small number of people, and it kind of suggests that we shouldn't treat those patients. But if the symptoms are disabling to the patient, then then we do treat them with TPA. And we know that disabling symptoms are an indication for treatment. And so asking the patient about the things that they do, the job that they have, and putting them through maneuvers that that maybe mimic the hobbies and jobs that they have in their normal life may bring out subtle, more subtle deficits or deficits that may be specifically disabling to the patient that wouldn't be disabling to other patients. And so I think you got to you got to ask some questions. I'm feeling a whole humanism push here, like getting to know your patient and then do shared decision making. And it's almost like classic medicine, right? The way we were all taught to do. <laughs> I'm proud of you for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's important. I mean, a lot of times people are really, they're really scared in emergency rooms. They're coming in, they have symptoms that usually started very acutely, which is why they're on, they're being seen by a stroke 
practitioner or an emergency medicine practitioner and they're they're nervous and they're scared and they're not able to do things and i find that if you just talk to them in addition to having people poke them for ivs and take blood pressures and have them raise their arms and their legs it, it can kind of ground them a little bit and you can get a much better story and you can get a better idea of whether the deficits that you're looking at especially if they're mild deficits if they are disabling to the patient that's sitting in front of you i think that's great I really appreciate you sharing your insights with us. Going to give you a 30 second privilege here because you've earned it, right? What do you have for those of us who are not stroke neurologists, for those listening who aren't stroke specialists? Do you have a, a, a one golden rule, a thing that you always teach your trainees or something that you carry with you is like, this is what I think about every time I see a stroke patient because it could save me. Yeah, I mean, there's a hundred of those things, right? But I, I think that particularly working in stroke centers and in busy emergency rooms, I think there's a tendency to get through the neurologic exam in the form of an NIH stroke scale and make really quick decisions and get their imaging and, and make decisions and, and not really circle back around and make sure you're closing loops and talking to your nurses and talking to your emergency room physicians. And and oftentimes we're making these decisions very quickly and we have and we're we're working with somewhat limited data. One of the most important things, in, aside from being competent in performing the stroke scale, aside from being competent in a basic neurologic exam that can identify focal deficits, aside from all of the things that you're being trained to do as a nurse or a, or a physician, I think that the importance of communicating with the entire team is something that we, we, we really take for granted. I always ask my nurses if that if the plan sounds reasonable, if they're seeing anything that I'm not seeing. I always circle back to my emergency room physicians and make sure that they're not seeing something that I didn't or I'm not seeing something that they didn't. And I think collectively and together, combined with talking with the patient, that that is probably the most important thing that you can do in an emergency room, aside from the things that you're already being trained to do. So a team-based acquisition of perspective is a great thing for all of us to consider as daily practice and, and really a best way to ensure that we're not missing stuff for our patients. 100%. The technicians in the CT scanner know more about stroke than you think they do. They, they have to move the patients from the scanner to the table. And when you have them moving a patient from a scanner to the table, and that person is moving themselves and moving their extremities, that gives you a lot of information. If you have a good relationship with your CT tech, they're going to tell you that. Dr. Ancelados, I am so grateful for your time. We wish you well in the next part of your journey. And I'm going to ask if you'll accept an invitation to come back and do another podcast with us in the future. This has been great for us and our listeners. If you're willing to share your time, we'd love to have you back. I would love to be back. I love talking about this stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. And this concludes our recording of the National Stroke Education Center podcast. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, M. Craig International, and MedEd on the go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.